New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Christopher Volk. He's the author of The Value Equation, a business guide to creating wealth for entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders, and has been instrumental in leading and publicly listing three successful companies, two of which he co-founded. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. The central idea of your book revolves around value, but it's mm-hmm. discussed in a way that isn't typically addressed as thoughtfully as you do. Can you set up how you approach it before we drill in more closely? Sure. The idea of the book was to show how businesses create wealth in America and around the world. There are universal ways in which they do it. And and they're all founded on not just being able to serve customers and whatnot, but they're being founded on a really solid business model. And, And so the idea was to show how value is created in a business by harnessing a great idea that people have to start a business with a strong business model that can create value for the owners of the business, but also their other stakeholders. And being a long-term business person myself, I'm pretty passionate about this and I want people to succeed. One of the early stories in your book is about Damon John, and he's the businessman and investor people might know as a regular on Shark Tank, For Us, By Us, FUBU. Can you share that story? Sure. Well, a number of years ago, I'm running our company and we had a conference that we would put on annually for customers of ours. And Damon John was an invited speaker. And Damon gave a talk that he does often about how he started his business. And when he started his business, he originally had an idea to create a clothing line. And he took a handful of articles of clothing to a convention in Las Vegas and emerged with several hundred thousand dollars worth of orders. And if you're anybody who's starting a business knows that that's a pretty exciting, heady moment. You've got a few hundred thousand dollars worth of business orders and you figure that you should be on your way. I mean, this is a seminal moment for anybody starting a business. Uh, And so he takes those orders and he proceeds to go to a lot of banks and financial institutions to see if he can borrow money because he had to borrow money to be able to buy materials and fabric and all the things to, to make the clothing items he'd had orders for. And no one would give him the money. And so what he did was he took out a second mortgage on uh, the house that he and his mother shared and and used that money to be able to finance the people and the machinery and the fabric that it took to create the clothing items that he had hundreds of thousands of dollars of orders for. And as he's doing all this and he makes the all the all the shirts and the materials, he delivers them, but he gives he gives all of his customers 60 days to pay him because he thinks that's a nice thing to do. You put things on account and you give them 60 days to pay. And as he's doing this, he gets obviously more orders that are coming in and and he finds he's running out of cash because he doesn't have cash to be able to meet all the payroll for the next 60 days. And it just didn't occur to him that by giving people 60 days to pay that it was going to really affect his cash flow cycle and his ability to be solvent. And so he was on borderline insolvency and he put out an ad in the New York Times in a classified ad section. Today, you probably do it on the internet somewhere, but back then he did a classified ad saying that he had a million dollars in orders, he needed financing. And a division of Samsung textiles from Korea offered to 
finance him. And and it was the last money he pretty much had to be able to buy this classified ad. So ultimately that paid off for him, but he had a rush with failure. And when businesses go out of business, they do not go out of business because they lose money. They go out of business because they run out of cash. And, and in Damon's case, he nearly ran out of cash. And the reason he ran out of cash is because he never really figured out what business investment was. When you're creating a company, there you need sewing machines, inventory, fabric. You need some cash. You need some liquidity. And you need enough cash to be able to survive the 30 or 60 days you're waiting to get paid because you've now converted a pile of fabric into an account receivable, So, which is another form of asset. And it's another effectively a business investment. He made an investment in essentially a loan or an account receivable to other people. And it never occurred to him that that was a business investment. And so one of the real things you need to understand is what's a business investment. And right. Damon John learned what it was and he he almost went out of business because he didn't know up front. And so he was saying that I wish I had more knowledge up front. And, and so when I listened to him, there was an inspiration to do this and to write a book and to start really with him and start with a concept of business investment and what it is. You know, one of the things that struck me as I was reading was I couldn't help but think that he was young and no, he didn't know these things, but he was also black and he couldn't get bank loans and and he had orders. And you talk in your book about other people's money. There's a lot of bias out there, unconscious and otherwise, that make it hard to get that money. How, when you're coaching or talking to minorities, women, how do you address those issues? You know, because renegotiating terms, something like payment terms, if you're the small business and it's a big company, it's very hard to, to negotiate those things. I know I had an agency and I had contracted net 30 terms and Turner sent me a letter informing me that they were now as a business best practice going to pay on net 90. And I was like, hello, <laughs> best, <laughs> best for who? And I have a contract. And they said they would pay on net 30 for a fee, even though they had contracted for net 30. And I was stuck. This is my client. They're a giant corporation. I'm an agency. You know, what am I going to do? And so, so how do you deal with that? How do you recommend people deal with some of those things? Well, I think that it's persistence. I just okay. think that when people, I, I think that there's not sort of one person you can go to that, that I'm aware of anyway, that says this is the greatest place for, for women or minorities to, to get financing. I think that for people to get financing is is always hard, especially on a first business. And and then if they're people of color or, or if, they're, if they're women, I'm not sure. I think probably because I'm a, a white male, probably white males have some privileges that I'm just, I've been taking advantage of. I've been, I've been sort of uh, taking for granted my whole life. But, but, but I think that uh, what I, what I'm really heartened by is this, is that first of all, we're in a, a period of time where there's just an, a huge emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, you go to mm. any public company out there, the, the, emphasis on DEI and the emphasis on environmental, social and governance issues, which sort of encompasses some of that as well, is pervasive. And that was not always the case. And this is right. probably over the last five, 10 years. And so I think people are really heightened by it. You know, their consciousness is really heightened by it. But the second thing is that when I started my career, there were no 
private equity funds. I mean, I mean, I started my career in 1980, uh, 1979, and the first private equity funds were just getting started back then. And, and today there's something like 10,000 private equity funds and, and venture capital funds and whatnot. And the fact is that the money is fungible. It's it's oh. Everybody's got money and it's green. What's not fungible is good leadership teams and good ideas. Right. And so what I find is that people are really in search of good ideas, good niches, but you know, it doesn't really matter. You still have to have that level of persistence and, and self-belief uh, that right. drives entrepreneurs to sit there and say, I don't care. I'm going to run through walls. And I mean, uh, there's no substitute for that, but I would say that <laughs> the world is an easier place than it was. And uh, right. so I'm encouraged by that. You mentioned private equity. You mentioned venture capital. Other people's money comes up a lot in the book. So what are the different types of other people's money and what are the pros and cons of those types of money? Because it is other people's money. And so there are expectations and strings and and deals to be made. So what are some of the considerations when looking at these types of sources of funding? Other people's money is more of a financial term than an accounting term. What I wanted to do is to escape from accounting, which is not a universal language, to talk about finance and how business entrepreneurs really think, you know, and they're thinking about what I'm doing and how am I going to finance it? And they could finance it by doing a lease. They could be financing it by doing borrowings. And then there are all kinds of people that you could lease or borrow money from. And that is where the book spends most of its time because all people, all entrepreneurs who are starting a business think about just basic stuff. What is What do things cost? Where does money come from? They're not really thinking about the accounting piece of it. So what you're doing in a business is you're taking business investment and you're funding that with borrowings and leases. They could be borrowings from banks or borrowings from family or borrowings from sellers of a business. And you could be leasing your locations if you have real estate locations, or you could be leasing equipment from people. And uh, all this is being used to finance your business investment. It all requires a return. You got to pay them back and you got to pay a return. There is a final piece of other people's money, which uh, most entrepreneurs are highly interested in, which is other people's equity, because most people, when they start a business, don't have the down payment. They don't have any equity to go into a business. And and so they're looking for how can I raise money from other people, which is basically what you see on uh, Shark Tank all the time when you have people going on to Shark Tank and trying to sell a piece of their business uh, for a certain amount of money. And of course, the, the goal is to sell a small piece of your business for as much money as you can and keep as much control as you can. And, and so I spend a fair amount of time in the book also talking about that because it's so important to how entrepreneurs start their businesses. I think that one of the challenges with entrepreneurs is being realistic about how much equity they can they can hold on, how much they give away and how that shifts over over time. I mean, the idea that someone can come up with an idea and build a hugely successful company and become a billionaire, it's part of our, our national folklore. Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Piero Midyar, Mark Zuckerberg, or even Rihanna with Fenty Beauty, you know, bazillions of dollars, right? But what are the odds of that happening to the typical entrepreneur? Well, they're they're better than playing golf on the PGA tour. So, <laughs> I mean, there there are something like 975 billionaires in America. So, if you were 975 on the PGA tour globally, I mean, this is just Americans. I mean, there are 2,500 billionaires in the world. But if if you're globally, there, I mean, America, there's 975 billionaires, and the 975th person on the PGA tour can't make a living at it. So, mm. so oddly enough, as as unicornish as Rihanna and everyone else is, that it, it's worth a billion. There are 
less unicornish than pro golfers in right. terms of their rarity. And and of course, if that's the case, then if your goal is much more realistic and down to earth to say, gee, I'd like to be worth a million dollars, then the odds of getting that done are actually pretty high. I mean, relative to the your chances of doing anything in life. And I think that that's really one of the reasons I, I wrote this book, because if you think about the richest people in the world, they all made their money in business, everyone. I mean, uh, Rihanna has made her money in business. Singing was was a catapulted her to that but ability and to use her celebrity. But but all uh, people in the Forbes 400 are made their money in business. And, and if you look at people that are kind of in the upper 1%, uh, by and large, is dominated by people who made their money in business. And so I really wanted to write this book to explain how that happens. It's not accidental. It's uh, there. There's definitely some luck to it. I mean, people that are billionaires not only have a good idea, but they have a lot of luck. But the but the math behind it isn't accidental. And so right. the math is important for people to understand because it really it comes down to, again, harnessing great ideas with a really potent business model. And a lot of times people have the good idea, but they, they, they've let the business model escape them a little bit. And so I'm going to try to bring them down to earth and say, this is how you should do it. There's there's this there's this chapter in the book that talks about public companies and 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 the thing about the the value equation and all the observations in the book is that they're all true. But but if you're reading the book, you you wouldn't be insulting me by asking a question about how does WeWork happen or how does uh, Tesla happen? How do these companies get these just huge values and they don't really do that much? I have one question. I'm dying to have your opinion on, and that is WeWork. Given the business that you were in when. And we work, you know, got all the money it got and then crashed the way it did. What were your thoughts as we work unfolded? I thought WeWork was an awful business from from the the moment I even heard about it. I, I thought it was a, ter- a terrible business. So so think about this. It, so I ran a company that was classified as a real estate investment trust. So real estate investment trusts are basically just there are companies like every other company, except for the fact that they don't pay corporate taxes and they have to have certain, they have to invest really their money in real estate. It could be real estate assets or mortgages. And so there are a bunch of REIT stocks you could buy today. And, you know, some right. of the stocks are office stocks. So if you could buy Vornado in New York, and there are a few other people, you could buy Boston properties. I mean, these are people that have office buildings and, and lots of office buildings and, and they're fairly conservatively leveraged. So they, these are companies that don't have like tons and tons of borrowings. They're, they're, they're highly rated from a, from a risk standpoint, from a balance sheet perspective. And and then along comes WeWork, and WeWork doesn't own any real estate, but it signs leases on all the all the real estate of the people I just mentioned. So Vornado yeah. or Boston Properties is, are leasing WeWork space, and so so WeWork is is worse than an office REIT because it's an office REIT with no real estate, right. just leases, right? And and then it's looking to sublease that space to individuals and. Because it's got a cute name and it's got backing from SoftBank and because it's, it's done by a guy out of California, people view it as a tech company. When well, really how? it was a how? it was a real estate company. Well, this is real without company. without real estate. I mean, this is it's a real how, estate company without real estate. Right. Exactly. Um, how did and, SoftBank fall for it? How come somebody like <laughs> you? How? How? I mean, this is like the conundrum for me when I see something like WeWork um, and I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. You know, I. I thought that it was, well, you know, they were always big into this is the future of work and people are going to have locations. They can use any of the WeWork offices here or there. And, and well, I think I, that I idea, if they had owned their real estate, it would have 
it would have been a real estate play. And I think it like almost like a combination, like a club and a real estate fund, but they didn't right. own any of it. it, it no, and I didn't no, see no, how no. it was tech. And I didn't understand where, I guess I didn't understand why SoftBank invested. And then when, and then, they, and then when they fired the guy who started it, whose name I can't recall, he walked out with a significant amount of money. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, how he, he, he took them to the cleaners, you know I mean? And I mean, he shouldn't have gotten any money. <laughs> you know, my net worth is a fraction of his and, and I've never failed at a business. Toward the end of the book, you discuss something I've not really seen discussed in this type of book. And that has to do with the circle of business life and the evolution of business industry landscape and which sector you happen to be in when you're looking for that in investment in addition to what you're coming up with. That's really important. Can you share some of the ways in which the industry sectors at the foundation of the wealth for these Forbes 400 wealthiest, how that's changed to give listeners an idea? This isn't a static thing. Oh, no. You know, so we live today in a very unusual time. So you'd have to look back to the turn of the 20th century to have anything comparable. And that's when you had folks like Andrew Carnegie and, and John D. Rockefeller the Vanderbilts, people who were industrial titans. And these folks made their money in everything from railroads to to steel mills to banks and transportation and infrastructure. And if you're looking at the Forbes 400 today and you say, well, how many people there are folks who made their money in banking? They're scarcely anybody. And if you say who's there that made their money in steel, there's scarcely anyone. And and part of it isn't because these steel companies are worth so much less, although they probably are worth a bit less. Uh, part of it is that they're just widely held. So unlike a gentleman like Andrew Carnegie owning so much of a single steel company uh, and a very large one at that, uh, today, there are no such owners uh, because the uh, ownership has just been uh, spread out across so many different people. And uh, so for sure, we have a, a new set of industries and and the Forbes 400 at the top tends to be dominated by a lot of tech entrepreneurs. But there are uh, throughout the Forbes 400 also a lot of asset management entrepreneurs. So hmm. about 25 percent of the Forbes 400 today is comprised of people that are asset managers. They manage money, whether it's hedge funds or whether it's uh, private equity capital or whether it's, it's venture capital. There's a lot of that kind of uh, asset management that's there which didn't exist 40 years ago. So it's just emerged. And I'm sure that years from now, that will move away and there'll be other people who are in the Forbes 400. So it's a very dynamic thing. It's not static at all. And so it's exciting to see that. And it's exciting to be part of this cycle because there's there's so much activity going on and so much entrepreneurship that's happened in, in my short career that, uh, and it seems to be continuing. And I think that uh, that's great and it should be inspirational for people thinking that, that they one day could start their own business. With AI and distributed ledger tech and integrated global businesses, do you believe the rate of this life cycle is accelerating? I think it's very possibly accelerating. And you've got, especially in areas like biotech, and you think about just the, the speed with which virus vaccines were created to, to prevent the coronavirus. It's, that's, uh, it was amazing. This, yeah, It was pretty incredible, right? And, uh, and that speed is just going to accelerate. And I think AI is going to be a big piece of that. In reviewing pre-interview materials, one thing that I found really interesting was the value in doing what you're good at versus doing what you love. I, I thought that that was interesting. You may love golf, but you may not be, you know, 
making money in the PGA tour, but you may be really good at something else. So where do you fall on the do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life? How should somebody think about entrepreneurship and their skill set and their passions? How, sh- how should they think about those things? I've given that a lot of thought. And I, I think that, you know, uh, a lot of times successful people, financially successful people are often ones who give advice, like follow your passions. And and so I was reading an article by a gentleman I follow and, and he made the comment that he refused to believe that these people were that passionate about healthcare accounts receivable or what I mean, in my case, I was I was financing net lease real estate. I was I was in the I became involved in the real estate business where I was owning real estate lease to chain restaurants and veterinary clinics and a lot of other heavy users of real estate. And if you'd asked me in my early career or by when I was in college, do you have a passion about this? I would say I wouldn't even know what it was to even have a passion about it. And so I think that a lot of times I find as I talk to young people that they're passionate about, for example, they may be passionate about the environment. There, there are certain issues on which they're passionate. And and th- those could be sort of written down as causes, you know, I mean, right. uh, or they may like they, they may like sports or whatever. But but behind all that, there are other things that they like. So when you're doing a survey of people, it turns out that that a that financial independence is really high on people's lists. They'd like to own a home. They'd like to be able to save enough for retirement. They'd like to, to be independent. Entrepreneurs like to work for themselves. Almost every person you could meet likes to make a difference. I mean, they like to think that they're helping other people. And 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 in fact, I think that all of this is is universal and important. And and it can give people a lot of personal career satisfaction to be in a career where you're making a difference and you're helping people and and you think you're leaving the world better than when you got there and so on. And I feel that about the career that I've had. And I but what I've what I did was I started trying to figure out what was I good at. And and I found out that I was pretty good at finance. And, and eventually I started becoming good enough that people started asking me to solve problems. And all the best jobs in the world of any stripe, whether it's in medicine or business or law or politics, involves solving problems. And and the people that are the problem solvers get the enjoyment of being able to really make a difference and and Mm. give answers to other people and solve the problems. And that's sort of where leaders get harvested from as they go into business. And and pretty soon, if you're doing this, what you find is that passion finds you. I mean, you end up being in a business where you're finding personal satisfaction and you're not working a day in your life because you've gotten really good at this stuff and you're getting the satisfaction of being able to do that and deliver it. And if you're an entrepreneur, you're working for yourself and you're not necessarily having to be accountable to other people as much. And and, and so you're combining all of these personal joys and satisfactions and, and, and collectively they're providing you with a passion. Uh, and I think that that's really the path that most people follow that are successful in business and in life. And as opposed to just following a cause from early on. Well, that's really an interesting, that's an interesting definitional way to look at it. It really helps set things into two different buckets, which I think is really interesting. Now, as a problem solver, you, I'm sure, started to notice patterns. What would you say are the most common finance mistakes that you see leaders make? We talked about cash flow, and that seems like that's a pretty big one. But what would you say are the other big mistakes that you would see people making? So in business, what I do in the book is I take business and break it down into three efficiencies that people have. 
that they can play with. And the first one is operating efficiency, which is basically sales and costs. I mean, uh, it's trying to jack your margins up as high as you can get by having more sales and trying to control your costs. And this is where the lion's share of time tends to be spent by business people. Yeah. But but there are other there are two other efficiencies. One is capital efficiency, which is your mix of OPM and, and equity and how you're doing that to optimize the value of the business you've created. And uh, the other one is asset efficiency, which is trying to minimize business investment, minimize the assets you have to finance with other people's money. And what I find is that this is where people make the most mistakes. They they focus a lot on the first efficiency, but they lose track of the la- of the second two. So when you're, for example, looking at some of the recent bank failures with Silicon Valley Bank, right, where you have short-term deposits, you've invested in long-term assets. I mean, this is a capital efficiency issue. You've basically you've right. you've basically misallocated your resources. So your 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 P and L is looking fine, but you, but you've misallocated your balance sheet. And people do this. I I've seen companies where they just don't have enough liquidity because they didn't finance their business enough and they didn't have enough cash and they just ran out of cash. I mean, that's, that'll is so I, uh, I find that the, the uh, asset and capital efficiency are where businesses fail. It's like where it fail. It's, it's where catastrophic risk lies. It's where all the minefields are. And, and so I spend a fair amount of time trying to talk about that. But Do you think that all kinds of industries have equal access to these levers? For instance, if you have a consultancy, let's say, where you mm-hmm. get a lot of people, how, how much can you lean into capital or asset efficiency? Yeah, good question. So uh, the the three efficiencies work to generate investor returns, but they're not all proportional from business to business. And um, and if you're in a service business as in consulting and perhaps you require very few assets, although you do require some. I mean, you have to right. have an office that you're renting, you've got to have desks, chairs, computers, you're you're investing some in and in, in software and and you have to have some capital to be able to hire people that are there. So you're going to have to you know, find some form of other people's money. You, you're going to have accounts receivable because you're billing somebody and they're not going to pay you for 30 or 60 or 90 days. And so you're going to have to figure out how to carry all that. And, and, but I would say, yes, you're right. I mean, it, uh, at a high level, those companies are going to have less to worry about in the way of capital and asset efficiency than, 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 a chain restaurant operator is going right. to have to worry about it. Or people in lots of business, manufacturer especially, I mean, it has to have so much in inventory and equipment and real estate. And so their their needs are going to be just much, much different. I've seen companies in recent years where they have been selling their business and and in selling their business, they have they've had, let's say, a lot of real estate associated with their locations. And they've come to the company that I led and they have gotten all their proceeds from doing this for from just the real estate. They, they, the people buying a company can buy the money, a company with no equity down. I've seen this happen a bunch of times in my career where people have bought companies with no money down. Whenever that happens, it's because the people selling the company didn't understand capital efficiency. They didn't understand what the art of the possible was. They thought they knew enough and they ended up getting taken to the cleaners. And so, so it's really important for business leaders to really have a handle on all this. Right. Last question. As a successful company founder, leader, entrepreneur, you've shared a lot of wonderful things. What is the one thing that you wish somebody had shared with you that would have made your life easier? Well, I wish I'd had more help in getting started. And so I had to find my first job on my own. I had to uh, do it with 
no assistance, no introductions, no help from anyone. I, I had I, I had very little advice, and and so over the years, I've tried to sort of make make amends for that and give people as much advice as I can. So I've I've hired scads of interns over the years, and I've uh, interviewed kids for college, the college at university I attended to, uh, so that I could help get them in, but also give them guidance on you know, what it takes to, to move forward. And one of my advice to people, by the way, is college majors are less important than summer internships and the summer internships are so important. And so it's advice like that, that I really wish that I had had from other people, but not any particular business level advice. And, and at the end of the day, having had to do this all on my own and to figure this out with no help, you know, didn't end up so bad. You managed pretty well. Yes, definitely. Well, that is our interview. Thank you so much for spending the time. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed being here and thank you very much for inviting me. We reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Nott and the voicers who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.